Hello and welcome to this podcast series with um, postgraduate students in the Department of Geography at Maynooth. Um, this is the last in the series for this year and um, as I said before it's, it's students who are all taking the master's module in spatial justice but the students are drawn from different disciplines so sociology, anthropology, media studies um, and geography and today we have a geography student Patrick Gifford is doing the masters in spatial justice um, so it's great to have you with us Patrick thanks very much um, great to be here it's a very exciting opportunity to kind of talk about talk about things flesh out some ideas um, so yeah today I'm going to talk about I guess um, the essay for the course which was on environmental justice um, and kind of buildings and architecture um, and yeah so this is kind of in line with my my general thesis research as well so it's it's quite a broad area um, and yeah I guess kind of how did I get into this um, is really the the first question so um, I guess I've always kind of been interested in in architecture and in urban space particularly growing up in Dublin myself and um, I was always kind of aware of it and um, but then doing my undergrad um, degree I, I moved to the Netherlands which is kind of a vastly different urban fabric it, it looks very different it feels very different um, and I think that maybe subliminally kind of uh, pushed me towards thinking about architecture a little bit more um, and yeah then kind of culmination of my degree um, and my thesis was about kind of uh, the work of forensic architecture, Bell and Katz, so these organizations who kind of use architecture in a very technological procedural way um, to kind of distill issues around human rights abuses, things like that. Um, and then it was coming back to Ireland and I guess seeing the lack of cultural spaces, the lack of affordable housing, you know, amongst a lot of my, my friends and peers. Um, I, yeah, I kind of was, I guess, triggered into thinking a bit more, how does all this relate to Ireland? Um, and then I think since starting in Minute, there's been quite kind of a turn towards questions of the environment, um, the circular economy, the Green New Deal and, and how that will all take place. And I kind of see housing, buildings, infrastructure, they're becoming a lot more of an issue um, in that. And kind of thinking through that is really what brought me to this topic. Great, thanks. Um, I, I mean, you, you you touched on it there and I think it's it's one of the most, you know, interesting parts of your work. and something that I'm sure listeners would be interested in too, is that you're connecting um, the built environment and particularly housing, or at least housing is one of the most critical issues related to the built environment today in Ireland. And you're linking that with broader, um, or not necessarily broader, but you're linking it with the climate and uh, uh, kind of ecological crisis and, and issues. and. I think those are, you know, if you open up a, a newspaper, listen to the radio, those are, are, are kind of two issues that are talked about a lot, but they're of, often not connected. 
um, or if they are connected, it's often in quite superficial ways. So I, w I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how you connect these two areas, the kind of housing architecture built environment on the one hand and the climate and ecological uh, kind of conditions on the other, how you link them in your own work and in your own analysis. Um, yeah, so I think kind of initially my exposure to that that topic or kind of my first um, time meeting them together was was kind of true from more of the perspective of like architectural practice, even though I'm not an architect, never will be probably. But um, I, I just was really fascinated in kind of the work of like Benjamin Bratton and how he talks about these global kind of infrastructures um, of like networks, architectures and how they kind of relate to digital space. Um, and then kind of thinking about how architecture as a practice is considering how to be non-extractive. So it knows that it's just building more, it's um, driving more kind of extraction of resources. It's creating kind of these non-places, non-spaces, this junk space, um, as Rem Coolhouse would say. Um, and so on the one hand, there's there's all that kind of self-reflection of architecture as a practice. Um, and then more recently and kind of, I guess, more relevant to actually what I'm doing now is the whole Green New Deal debate um, and how architecture, construction and demolition waste plays into that. So thinking about, first off, um, embodied carbon within buildings. So, you know, buildings when they're constructed all the carbon that goes into um, the extraction of materials the movement of that material and um, the use and construction of it so that's one key issue which has really come about in recent years and um, in terms of the kind of question of sustainability in building and um, then at the same time you have the actual waste. So when a building's life cycle is finished um, and it gets demolished, first off, you have all that embodied carbon being released. Um, and then secondly, there's the question is, as these materials are broken down and kind of move into various waste streams, you know, of bricks, of copper, glass, um, whatever you have, how are those kind of used? Um, and Within Ireland, um, a lot of that kind of material isn't used um, to any particular good degree, like a very small portion of it is being recycled, even less is being kind of adaptively reused. Um, so I guess that kind of in trying to get to grips with what's going on in Ireland, that was one of the first kind of red flags. Then there's also the question of how does actually the construction industry itself um, contribute to emissions? So I think there was a figure from the EPA from last year which said it was about 11%. And for a single industry, that's that's pretty substantial. Um, along with the kind of the amount of waste, which I think was about 65% last year of kind of all waste was coming from construction um, and demolition waste. So. There's kind of a a very um, stark, immediate question there. Um, and then in terms of government response to that, 
um, and kind of how are policies being taught through to kind of bring us to zero carbon or net zero carbon. Um, and I think, yeah, recently in the media, retrofitting has probably been the one that's broken the most ground. Um, so that is the, the kind of um, uh, like reconstruction um, or kind of redesigning of buildings, the addition of certain materials to buildings um, in order to make them more energy efficient. Um, and that's, yeah, I guess that's also kind of where I, I see one of the, the biggest questions for environmental justice coming about um, in terms of uh, who is this kind of, who are these policies designed for? Are they accessible to people? Um, and how will they actually kind of manifest um, to the people who need them most? I think, which is especially pressing now um, in regards to the kind of push to to remove peat removal um, from bogs, and that's mainly impacting rural communities, um, who in many instances are kind of marginalised. So then, thinking of that logic um, in terms of okay, we're gonna solve that with this retrofitting you know there's really big questions there um for kind of environmental justice so i guess yeah that's kind of a brief overview of some of the the issues which i think are, are kind of intermingling together um, and obviously it's super broad but no it's fascinating i think one of the things that you know is really striking is that you know the relationship between say housing or built environment and uh, environmental and climate concerns. For most people, like retrofitting makes sense. I mean, that's like you say, it's the one that gets a lot of attention. And I think the thing about retrofitting as it's in the name is the idea that like, how do you make existing housing stock or existing buildings more efficient? So it's about reducing, you know, their, their energy use um, uh, and so on. And, and that's sort of like a turn to the, the past, you know, in a way it's about how to make existing older stock better and but then the thing that you started talking about there was about the, the the construction of new buildings and the ways in which it's a term that you used early on in your work of architectural obsolescence and this idea that you know um, buildings are, are designed now and built to not last um, uh, which maybe you could talk a little bit more about but that gets less attention you know the idea that what it is that's driving the construction industry is as we know you know it's it's a capitalist political economy and you know that comes into into to conflict with you know maybe more sustainable um you know aims and priorities which are sort of building things to to last which would be requiring less materials um you know over over a longer period of time so i don't know if you wanted to say a little bit about how your understanding of you know, capitalist political economy around, you know, building construction relates to the construction of, of new buildings and maybe also how it relates to the possibilities of, of retrofitting. Yeah, so I think that's that's really fascinating, especially in the instance of Ireland. So that term architectural obsolescence, um, I think sums up a, a fascinating logic with which kind of came about, I guess, towards the end of the 1800s. Daniel Abramson has written a, a really fascinating book on it. Um, and kind of, uh, I think you can maybe 
pin one portion of it with kind of the Hosmanization of Paris um, by Napoleon. So to kind of the removal of the kind of old winding streets and this kind of big grand European city being implemented as kind of a, a show of real kind of political will or statecraft. And I think um, that's a really interesting thing to think about relative to the day of how these kind of um, large-scale kind of architect buildings, which is something kind of different from what I'm focusing on, but I think offers a lot of insight to this kind of um, political economy, um, how they kind of create kind of a, a politi, a politics of themselves. Um, Keller Easterling talks about this in Extra Statecraft as well. And it, it kind of, it goes beyond housing, it goes beyond buildings. It's uh, data centers, for example, as you know, there's a whole kind of mode of political economy and organization, which kind of springboards off of them, which is really fascinating. Um, so yeah, you can, you can kind of look at this um, process of, of obsolescence being coded through that, through, I think, the growth, um, Abramson talks about it, the growth of New York um, as a city and and certain tax regimes which would give benefits to the buildings which would fall obsolete and then could be demolished and, and remade um you know in in a larger kind of image and for ireland that's really fascinating because you know, of course we live in you know this kind of neoliberal edge of ireland where things just kind of happen at the at the behest of of globalization and you know large kind of business transaction you know the, the celtic tiger was case in point in that and i think um we're, we're still li living with the the legacy of that but you can even trace it back further and um, you know i think i focus a lot on dublin in in that particular essay um and kind of following the act of union the dissolution of kind of the protestant ascendancy there and, and the gradual development of inner city slums um giving way then in kind of the 1930s to kind of a push for social housing um, and then um, a push for kind of larger scale housing across the country through housing estates as kind of a point of a Fianna Fáil de Valera statecraft, um, which, you know, is funny now because Fianna Fáil are trying to that's the image they're trying to, to represent with housing for all. Um, and yeah i think i think that gradually continued you know um particularly in in dublin i think it's a very interesting kind of fabric of this inner city being enclosed um and being i guess uh commodified um a lot of um buildings social housing being left to kind of not break down but just um being left uh, uncared for by Dublin City Council or Dublin Corporation at the time. And it's from that which we kind of see the first points of housing activism, um, which that's really the main kind of thread I think I wanted to get at in this article was how housing activism can kind of be extended to think about issues of the environment when traditionally it's been more about the very kind of immediate experience of okay i want a house to live in you know i want it to be 
um, in relatively good condition and sustainable and cheap for me to rent or buy. Um, and then, of course, you also have the whole cultural aspect, which broke ground in 1970s with the redevelopment of Woodkey by Dublin City Council. Um, so that's kind of another strand, um, which I think then kind of that strand of housing and that strand of culture merged together quite significantly in Dublin um, with kind of Dublin Housing Action Committee, Housing Action Now, um, throughout kind of 80s, 90s. And then more recently, we have um, kind of networks from Home Sweet Home, um, ran kind of Hawkins House, Apollo House um, a few years ago. And then, yeah, more recently, Katu. So the rights for, for renters, mortgage holders. And you have that. And then at the same time, you have kind of newer cultural organizations that say, like, give us the night. who are looking particularly at nighttime spaces and kind of the acetization, financialization of cultural spaces, the ecliptic um, newsletter, a bunch of artists who... I kind of work with and and they're also doing cool stuff around this and kind of public access so there's like this broad fabric of kind of people and activists doing things um which i think really reflects some of the issues of, of political economy in ireland around housing well i wonder if you could say because you just you, you covered a lot there you know of time and lots of different types of campaigns and and forms of activism but the, the point that you raised there about trying to think about housing activism as intersecting with environmental justice or environmental politics, could you say say a little bit more about that? Like why or how some of these campaigns or movements could be understood as environmentalist or environmental? Yeah, well, I think at the moment the the real question for for housing and, and kind of a very common narrative in kind of the media in activism is about vacancy. You know, we have, I think the Irish Times had an article last year where about the 10th highest vacancy rate in the world. Uh, there's like 180,000 properties vacant across the state, thereabouts, um, relative to like, I don't know, the Netherlands, let's say, where, where I kind of, um, you know have experienced totally different and i think vacancy is really interesting because it speaks to you know okay why can't these houses be used um for cheap affordable good housing on the one hand but then there is also all the issues i talked about initially of kind of embodied carbon um the use of let's say a vacant property versus all the embodied carbon um, that would go into, you know, building new property. Then at the same time, there's also um, kind of the, the, the issue of vacancy and dereliction, which I guess a bit of a disclaimer, you know, vacancy um, is a property which is just lying there with, you know, no one living in it. Dereliction is actually when that property falls in quality to a certain degree. And there's issues with it whereby for it to be lived in, there would need to be a substantial amount of work done to it. Um, and in that, 
derelict properties can have very kind of immediate environmental harms to people. Um, so in terms of chemicals, leaching, asbestos, um, you know, dangerous structures, they're kind of immediate kind of um, chemical, physical harms. But then there's also the kind of social harm of, um, you know, your area just becoming dilapidated, the kind of effective dimension of that. Um, and I think, yeah, there is, there is definitely a, a turn kind of towards that. And I think, um, or in terms of blending those kind of issues together, and I think a niche in Cork are probably one of the most interesting um, kind of activist groups um, or kind of people looking at this. Um, you know, they're, they're doing really great work looking at vacancy, developing um, this vacancy walk initially in Cork, and now that's kind of taken hold in Dublin and Waterford um, in Limerick, you know, in other places across the country. Um, and I think there's, there's kind of a sense of agency and urgency from that in terms of looking at, at kind of the built environment and bridging these different kind of strands, you know? And I guess, I don't know if an issue of doing that, making it explicit, the link between the kind of housing injustice and the kind of environmental justice implications of vacancy. But um, what do you see are the advantages of doing that? Like, why is it important to make those connections? There's a strength in terms of developing a kind of broader holistic framework, um, which can be as kind of intersectional as possible. Um, and can deal with kind of different different parts of the country. Um, so, you know, I think oftentimes there's kind of a, a stark rural-urban divide in Ireland. Um, and one way, in terms of activism, kind of community groups, um, and one way of kind of remedying that or kind of bringing disparate groups or groups who necessarily wouldn't have come into contact before um, together could be done through kind of the environmental justice of housing, you know, and I think um, retrofitting is a, is a really interesting example of this. So um, how it will be rolled out um, is through uh, SEAI grants of, I think, for kind of a full retrofit. Um, it's about 29,000. But basically, even with full grants, whoever um, kind of wants retrofitting done would still have to shore up about 10 to 15,000 in costs. Um, and for kind of uh, issues of fuel poverty, which are really kind of stark right now, um, the question is, is that money actually going to the people who need it? So those people who are under threat from fuel poverty, or is this just a handoff to um, kind of those who can afford it? Um, and I think also in context of the, the ban on, on turf cutting and the ban on peat, um, that that's actually a very specific issue which could kind of link, link different communities and networks together um, in terms of understanding, okay, on the first hand, is this scheme viable for those in kind of marginalized rural communities? And secondly, how do we get the point across that this could actually be a, a very good 
um, and beneficial thing for people, you know, because there is mistrust of a lot of these schemes um, in many cases. And I think developing up these these kind of networks um, is one way to kind of, yeah, remedy or, or, or fix that. Yeah, I, I think I think you're you're right. I mean, I think that retrofitting is something that you you could see a lot of different um, sort of social groups, you know, sections of the population, you know, potentially coming together under some kind of demand around like a, a properly funded public retrofitting scheme. Um, it se seems a bit odd because it seems quite technical and not that interesting. But if, if retrofitting, I think, you know, understood as the kind of, you know, uh, a, a huge, you mentioned the Green New Deal on the kind of scale of, of, of that kind of state intervention, which would, you know, provide employment for lots of, uh, you know, builders and, you know, plumbers and, um, you know, electricians and, you know, all new industries like solar. And so it would provide jobs and it would provide, uh, it would save costs for people, it would make things more affordable. I think there's all sorts of things you can see behind it. But like you say, I think at least how it's being rolled out at the moment and certainly how it's perceived is it's seen as quite an elitist thing. Um, and it also, and maybe you could talk a bit about this, is that um, it obviously appeals or applies to um, homeowners. And, you know, you mentioned Katu the, early on in the program that, you know, is a, a housing movement that is working with tenants and, you know, the, the, the context for people in the private rented sector, which is a growing section of the population, that's how they access housing. I mean, these kinds of schemes are not going to benefit them at all. Um, in fact, it may be used as a way to get rid of tenants or something. So I don't know if that's something that you had thought about or how, how retro, you know, how does retrofitting work in a context where access to housing um, to begin with is so, so precarious for so many? Yeah, so that's, that's actually a great point. Kadu have, I think, um, raised that issue in terms of for renters. Uh, the fact of giving retrofit grants to private or to landlords um, just means that they're able to improve their private property and what that could actually um, get them to do or what that could cause is they could push tenants out and then raise raise the rent you know by way of saying okay well I've, I've improved your property um, despite the fact they've gotten a grant for doing it and then they just push up the rent and move people out so there is kind of yeah there are questions of kind of this ecological modernization and who slips through the cracks in that and I think the retrofitting um, question and how that's rolled out to renters is is certainly one one kind of case there I think it has kind of been raised and I think um, you know for what it's worth the government are aware of that um, which is good to hear but yeah it'll be interesting to to kind of see um, how that rolls out and it's also kind of a a point of green gentrification as well i think that that's possibly how it will end up materializing yeah it's just um it's interesting to think though how versus kind of the rest of europe i think the whole kind of narrative and logic of retrofitting um passive houses is, has come quite late to ireland um like there are groups like the irish green building council 
um, who've kind of sprung up and are really pushing kind of for, um, you know, sustainable building practices, um, whereby energy efficiency is, is kind of key. Um, but that's something very much not in the mainstream at this point still. But I think that will change kind of as as these policies um, kind of become more more kind of uh, clear cut, you know, like I see in the most recent Dublin development plan, they have like a full section on construction and demolition waste and the circular economy. So it is gradually um, becoming a, a question, but um, for, for policymakers, but it's really about, okay, well, how does that actually take shape? And what does that include? What does that um, look like for certain groups of people? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much. Because I, I mean, the other part of that is that people, you know, it needs to be within a greater kind of public consciousness and something that people are, are, are talking about more. And I, I know that that figure of it's six, you know, needs 70% of waste is generated by construction in Ireland is, is huge. And it definitely doesn't get as much attention as it should. So your work is, um, is really useful in that regard and i'm you know i'm really excited to see how your thesis develops and and hopefully you know beyond your thesis you know what what you're going to produce and you know how how that can be shared so thanks for thanks for chatting about your work and um you know raising all these interesting connections between housing built environment and environmental justice great it was an absolute pleasure thanks so much patrick